So how did Christianity go from being a belief that a smattering of people had in Jerusalem to something that exploded throughout the Roman Empire and eventually becoming a global faith? But how did it, how did it spread throughout the Roman Empire and come to become a perspective that really dominated the empire? You know, to answer this question, we've been looking at the book of Acts. And last week, we looked at what happened when the gospel, when the, when the Christian view came up into Europe. And we saw how, what happened when, when it came to Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony, and Rome was known as a very pragmatic empire. It was marked by, by wealth, its ability to produce wealth and power. And it's not, you know, uh, a surprise that the two people that actually come to faith in Philippi, this Roman colony, is a businesswoman who knows how to create wealth, and a jailer who knows how to, you know, use these, a Roman jailer, probably a, a veteran, use his power. And so that's what we saw last week. And we saw the team at work there last week. But this week is just very different. This week we move from a, a situation where we have this Roman colony to a very different kind of city. Not known for Roman pragmatism, but known for being a cosmopolitan capital that is influential in terms of cultural and intellectual heft. We move from it being a situation where Paul and his teammates are going to reach the city of Philippi now Paul is alone. He's by himself as he walks into the city. Today we move from Philippi to Athens. If you haven't already, grab a Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. You're going to need it today. Um, and, and you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34. And I'd love for you to join me there. It's on page 1178. And, and this Oh my gosh, this is just a classic text. This is a great text. And uh, there's so many things I could do with this text. There's books that have been written on this text. There's academic articles that, that dissect this text. There's a million directions. But what I want to do this morning is I want to follow the lead of a hero of mine named John Stott, who's a, a Bible scholar and a pastor. And I want to focus on how Paul went about reaching Athens. What was his strategy for reaching this center of cultural and intellectual heft? And what can we learn from that as we seek to reach our own cosmopolitan capital? You know, LA, it's a cosmopolitan capital. It's one of the top 20 cities that influence her globally. What can we learn as we look at how Paul approached reaching Athens for our own context here in LA? And I want to do this in four movements. First, I want to look at what Paul saw then I want to look at what Paul felt. Then I want to look at what Paul did. And finally, I want to look at what Paul said. All right? So what Paul saw, what he felt, what he did, and what Paul said. That's where we're going today. So right off the bat, let's look at what Paul saw, okay? And to understand what Paul saw, we really need to kind of backtrack. And as I already mentioned, uh, understand Paul's state of mind, because Paul is alone in Athens. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. And what's happened? Well, Paul from Philippi, and Paul and Silas and Timothy went to Thessalonica. There they shared the gospel. It did really well, but there's some people that became angry at the success of the gospel, some Jews, and they drove them out. So then they went to Berea, and then that did well. And then those same agitators came, and at this point, they want to kill Paul. So some of the Bereans, a couple of Berean brothers, grab Paul, and they take off to Athens to escape, save his life. And they, they want to bring him to a city where he can just kind of melt into the crowd, and they leave him there. All right? So that's, that's the situation. Paul is all alone. He's waiting for his buddies to join him there in Athens. And he's alone in this incredible city. 
And what an experience that must have been. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a new city, like a really amazing city by yourself for the first time. But I remember the first time I went to New York, and it was like all these giant just chasms, you know. It's like, wow, look at, the, look at just the, the, all the skyscrapers as far as you can see. It was just an amazing experience. Paul comes into Athens, and it's an amazing experience. You know, um, what he saw, that's what we're talking about. Look at, look at Athens, Okay. Uh, what an experience it must have been. Athens was the city where at the center you had the Acropolis, which means hilled city. And on the Acropolis stood the Parthenon, all right? And in the middle of this impressive structure was this giant, uh, you can see this giant statue of Athena, all right? The spear itself, okay, it had, a, it had a gold tip. And it was said that you could see the shine of that gold tip from 40 miles away. It was darn impressive with all these beautiful buildings, okay? Um, and, and, and then you also had uh, all this te- these temples and statuary throughout the city of Athens. So you had all these temples and statuary dedicated to Apollo and Jupiter and Venus, you know, and Bacchus, the god of wine, and Mercury and Neptune and Diana and so on. Um, and then just 50 yards uh, Near the Acropolis, some of you might have been there. Um, you've been on there. I've been on there. Right here, you had this outcropping of rocks, okay? This little section here was dedicated to the god of war. In Latin, that's Mars. In Greek, that's Eris, okay? And so they would call this little section here Mars Hill, okay? Or in Greek, Areopagus, Hill of Eris, okay? And so that's the Areopagus. And this, by the way, was also where the superior court of Athens would meet, Okay? And they would decide cases. They would judge if there was a homicide, if there was somebody that was doing something wrong. They would, they would judge cases there. They would judge cases if somebody brought some kind of uh, scandal in the city, whatever. Now, by the time Paul gets there, Rome has now had Athens under its thumb for about a century. It's still a beautiful city. It's still a cultural and intellectual center of the empire. But what happened with the, that group there in the Areopagus is that they now have a little different role. I mean, we're going to see more about that. But the city that Paul comes to is just a beautiful city with all this. I mean, these amazing sculptors and all these architects are pouring themselves out into the beauty of the city. But Athens, as I mentioned, was not only a beautiful city. It was a center of cultural and intellectual uh, uh, heft, like I said. You know, Athens was the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. And, you know, I I don't need to tell you that some of the brightest minds that have ever walked the face of the earth came from Athens. You have Socrates, you know. You have Plato, Aristotle. Hopefully you've heard of these names, right? Um, But you also had all kinds of artists and, and playwrights and mathematicians and medical geniuses and sculptors. They all called it home. So, so Athens is like uh, you know, Oxbridge. It's like you take Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and Princeton and Yale, you just wrap it all into one. That's Athens. It's amazing. And so here's Paul. Now, I already mentioned this. Paul is also from Tarsus. There was three intellectual centers. Athens was at the top by far. But there's also Alexandria and Tarsus. And Tarsus was also like a major university town. So Paul's grown up kind of, you know, in the competition, so to speak, but knowing that like this is, the, this is Harvard, this is the place, you know, this is it. And, um, and so, with a mind like Paul's, there was plenty for him to grab uh, his mind and think about. I mean, you know. So, there's Paul. Uh, you know, he knows about Greek philosophers. He knows Greek poetry. He's a kid in a candy shop there in Athens. But notice here, 
What was it that grabbed Paul's attention? It wasn't Athens' impressive buildings or rich intellectual history that struck Paul. It says there in the text, he saw that the city was full of idols. He saw that the city was full of idols. This word full is a very interesting word. It, can, it, it connotates the idea of being kind of uh, under the weight of something that's suffocating you. So maybe a good translation would be that he saw that the city was smothered in idols. He saw that the city was drowning in idols. He saw that the city was swamped in idols. You know, Paul viewed the city different than a typical tourist that showed up at Athens. The first time I went to Paris, I was a young man, I had two days in Paris. I remember I had my little camera and I showed up and, you know, go. It's go time. Arc de Triomphe, you know, and you're going to the Louvre and all that. And you're just taking your pictures and being the tourist. You run around as fast as you can. And 20 years later, I was invited to give a paper at an academic conference in Paris on the French Revolution. So I spent, you know, half a year reading all these books about the history of Paris and all this stuff. And, and then I tried to save money. So I go to, like, you know, the cheaper area of Paris. You know, I'm not staying in the tourist zone. I got to tell you, I had a totally different view of Paris that round. Like I showed up and I realized Paris is a city that has a crazy history, a lot of struggle, has some seedy areas, has a lot of needs. You know, when Paul came to Athens, yeah, he could appreciate the beauty, he could appreciate the philosophical minds, he could appreciate the poetry, he could appreciate all of that. But he also saw the spiritual reality of the city. You know, he knew there was a lot more going on than met the eye. And Christianity does that. Christianity carries with it an appreciation for art and thought and, and technological advances and sports and the whole bit. But it also carries with it resources for seeing more, resources for seeing additional realities. You know, when we see the world in light of God's word, we're going to be able to see more going on. And that's exactly what happened for Paul and if we're going to reach our culture, we need to do more than just have the nice shine that grabs our eyes. We need to be able to see the spiritual realities that are going on underneath all of that. We need to see what's happening in Los Angeles, what's happening in our neighborhoods. We need to be able to see, as Paul did, that this city was drowning with God substitutes. People were looking for lots of things in order to meet their fundamental human achings for meaning and significance in life. Paul could see that. He could see it everywhere. He could see those God substitutes everywhere. G.K. Chesterton says, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing. He worships everything. We are value-making creatures, and we can't help but ascribe value to things, and the thing that we ascribe the most value to becomes our functional God. We look to that to be life-giving. Paul knew this was taking place. He could see it taking place. And look what happened is Paul immediately saw the depth and the spiritual reality of that. So what happened as a result of that? Well, Paul felt something. What did Paul feel? Look what it says. His spirit was provoked within him. Again, another interesting word, provoke, to irritate, to distress, to rouse, to anger, yes. But the reason this is an interesting word is this is the exact same Greek word that is used throughout the Old Testament when it talks about how God felt about idols. God is provoked when he sees God substitutes. God is provoked when he sees idolatry. 
The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God, okay? He gets irritated when we go after God substitutes. You might say, whoa, 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 wait, God's jealous? Like, wait, what? You know, there's different ways you can be jealous. You can be jealous because you meet somebody who's, you know, stronger than you or more beautiful or, or smarter than you, okay? And if that's the case, that's a moral defect. You shouldn't respond that way when you meet somebody that, that has something that's better than what you have. That's not what we're talking about, okay? There's another sense of jealousy. And this is the kind of jealousy that happens when there's a third party that tries to enter into a marriage, you know, and that spouse has a rightful claim on that person. And the only healthy response in that situation is to be angry and to be jealous because you have a rightful claim to that person's attention, affection, adoration. So God is, is jealous in this sense. God, no, by the way, God, you know, God, God is perfect. So God's not worried about comparing himself with anybody else. God is perfect, and part of his perfection is that he knows that no one else is perfect like him. God knows he's God, okay? This is a jealousy in which God knows that he is rightfully due our attention and affection in light of his perfection. That's what's happening here, okay? Uh, this provoking is the same word as that same feeling that God has. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God has self-respect. God has self-respect. And when people don't treat God as God, in the same way, if somebody doesn't treat you as a human being with dignity, it's normal to feel upset about that. It's healthy, actually, not to be walked on. And we don't treat God as God. God also is provoked and upset about that. And that's what's happening here. But people can also be jealous for God. In fact, the Old Testament prophets are famous for being jealous for God, being distressed when God is being disrespected and disregarded and replaced with other things. Read the prophets. Like every prophet, you know, there's 17 prophets in the Old Testament. Every prophet is like the same problem. They're like, holy cow! How are you treating God here, people? I mean, that's pretty much the prophets. There you go. There's a summary of all 17 books, okay? That's the prophets. I like it. Elijah, I mean, then they just start engaging in holy mockery. You know, if Elijah's sitting there and he's looking at the prophets of Baal and he's like, oh my gosh, you're going to worship this thing. Okay, well, what's wrong with him? Why isn't he here showing up? Is he on vacation? Did he have to go to work today? Is he sleepy? Is he on the toilet? He had to relieve himself. What's the problem with your God? Why don't you worship the true God? The true and living God has no needs. The true and living God doesn't need to sleep and he doesn't need all those things, right? And so, you know, when Paul shows up and he's distressed, he's feeling the same way that the prophets felt. He sees the way that God is being disrespected. He sees also, by the way, he sees the way in which these Athenians are looking to God's substitutes, which he knows can never satisfy them, which were never meant to hit at the bottom of the human heart, which was created by God. And so he also has this feeling of being brokenhearted for these people. You know, every, you know, parents are aware of this. The weirdest thing when you're a parent is you can be really angry at your child for doing something that could have hurt them. Why would you do that as a parent? It's because, you know what? Because you love that kid. And when anything might actually hurt your child and keep them from flourishing, you get this kind of protective anger because you care about that kid. And this is what's going on inside the heart of Paul. Paul is provoked. He wants what's best 
for these people. He wants God's own honor to be recognized. And so Paul is heartbroken. He has a zeal for God, and he wants these Athenians to, to respect God. He wants the name of Jesus to be worshipped in Athens as it rightfully should be. He's like the psalmist who says, let all the people praise you, Lord. Let everybody praise you. You deserve to be praised by everybody. Let all the people praise you. And then he looks at the Athenians and he's like, wine, really? You're living for wine. That's what Bacchus was, wine. Wow, you're missing. You're missing out. He's heartbroken. And so right off the bat, you know, I'm a theologian. I love Paul's theology. You know, I love how Paul saw things. But I'm convicted. Do I feel how Paul felt? Do, do I care when I see that God is not being worshipped? When I look at my neighborhood, when I look at my city? Do, I, do I'm like, I wish Jesus was being worshipped by everybody. And then when I see the people around me that are going to God's substitutes, am I heartbroken for them? We need not only admire Paul's theology, we also need his heart. And Paul couldn't see people who were far away from God and not be stirred deeply within himself. So what did Paul do? We've seen what Paul uh, uh, saw. We saw how Paul felt. What, what, did, what did Paul do? And, and Paul responded. He didn't just feel all these things. He actually did something, right? Uh, this compassion resulted in action, and we see it right away with the way that he engages with these Athenians. Look what it says in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He goes to two places, the synagogue and the marketplace, a religious place where there's religious people who don't know God, Okay, and, and the marketplace, a, a public place, a secular public place. So let's look at these. The first is the synagogue where the religious people uh, come together. They're actually learning the Bible, okay? Uh, but they don't know the gospel. They don't, they don't have a personal relationship with God. They don't know the gospel. And in fact, we saw this last week. This is kind of a thing that Paul does, you know. If you go up in chapter 17, you go all the way up to verse 2, we see him doing this when he goes into Thessalonica. There it says in 17 verse 2, Glad you got your Bible out. There came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, verse 2, as was his custom. And on three Sabbaths day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So since these people are exposed to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament points to Jesus, he goes and he walks them through and shows how the Old Testament is pointing to the promised one, Jesus. Okay, and this was his custom. But right off the bat, before we leave this point, because we saw it last week, right off the bat, there's something that we can take with us. And that is this. Just because you are in a place where the Bible's being taught and people probably believe in God doesn't mean everyone knows Jesus. Doesn't mean that everybody understands the gospel. And so right off the bat, I think I, I just want to say this. You know, we can't assume that just because we're in church, everybody here is family. Everybody here knows Christ. In fact, in the five years I've been here, we've had people come in, happens all the time, they don't know Jesus, okay? And we had, we had some of them come to know the gospel, get baptized, that happens here. And so wherever you're at in this church, okay, you gotta keep your eyes and your ears open, okay? Because those people come here. 
If you're working in children's ministry, you need to regularly present the gospel. I know you've heard it before. I know I've heard it before. But we can't assume that everybody understands the basic message of Christianity. If you're working with youth, if you're working with young adult, if you're a greeter, if you're, if you're serving coffee, be ready. Because God's going to bring somebody when you're in a church function who doesn't know. And that'll be your chance to share. And so that's what we see Paul doing. Paul is sharing the gospel there in these synagogues, okay? But also says that Paul goes to the marketplace, the Athenian marketplace. Now, this is a really unfortunate translation, okay, of the word agora, okay? When I hear marketplace, I think he went to the shopping mall. Or maybe I think he went to the farmer's market. Like, Paul's really into organics and... He's at farmer's market every week because he's got to get his organics and he you know, says something about Jesus now and then. That's, that's not what the agora was, okay? The, the word agora is the public square in Athens. It's, it's like the Zocalo in Mexico City. It's the place where everything happens. It's the place where everybody goes, okay? It was the meeting place, yes, where people came together just to hang out, but it was also a commercial center. It was the center where people like Socrates taught it was where the various philosophical schools met, okay? So this is a place where intellectuals would go and have philosophical conversations. You know, it'd be like the, the, the university. It was also a cultural center where you had the library, you had the conservatory. It was a place where the Greek playwrights that you had to learn about in school, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides, staged their first tragedies. It was a political and administrative center where you would have people that work for the government who are doing governmental things, all of that is taking place in the Agora. And by bringing Christianity to the Agora, Paul is taking Christianity into all of these different sectors, into all of these different fields. And he's showing how Christianity speaks into these areas as he's having these conversations with people. You know, Athens is a lot like late modern Los Angeles. Most people in Athens would never go to the synagogue. The synagogue was for those weird people from that other culture, those Jews. We're not, we, we don't even, they're marginal. We don't get them. That's not us. And, and that's how most Los Angelinos view us. We're on the margins. We're kind of weird. We're a little dubious, you know? That's how they view us. Now, if you showed up in Los Angeles in 1950 and you, you know, you wanted to reach people, you go, you know what? Let's just build a church. If we build it, they will come. Field of Dreams philosophy, right? Good movie, bad philosophy. <laughs> At least for us, right? No, that's not how it works today. If you're going to reach Los Angeles, you can't just hope that be there. God will bring people. There will be people that will drift in here. It's amazing, okay? But we have to go out into our marketplaces, our agora, whether it's in the music industry, our government, our business, our education. We have to go out there, and that's where we have to bring the gospel. You know, uh, you saw a little advertisement for the Center for Faith and Work Gala, LA. You know, I work for that organization, so this is an unashamed promotion. I get it. But you know, the reason why I believe in that organization is that if we're going to reach people that don't know our faith, we can't expect them to decide to wake up on a Sunday morning and say, I should go to church, because they're not going to think that. We have to go into those arenas, and we have to know how to live out our faith in those arenas and bring our faith into those arenas. Now, I love this, though. I love this. You know, Paul is out there reaching his culture, reaching his culture. And we've got to do that. I'll just say this, you know, with e I'll just add this. With each generation, you go from generation X to Y to Z, you know, 
as we go, there's more and more nuns, more and more people that don't consider church as part of their, even an option, like a plausible option, okay? So this has to be something we take serious, all right? So here's Paul. He goes to the religious people, and he goes to those who, they have no way of understanding. They might be very smart. Some of them are very smart, very smart people. There's some major philosophers. We're going to hear about them in a second. He goes, and he has conversations with them. They don't know the first thing about, they have a totally different worldview, they have not, you know, you can say the book of Job today to people, and they're like, Job? Like, what's that, you know? I mean, a lot of people in, in some of the younger generations don't even know the difference between, that there are two testaments in the Bible. You say Old Testament, they think you're thinking about something totally different, okay? So we can't, we need to learn how to bring the gospel, and Paul's going to give us some clues on that, all right? And he does it uh, right, right, off bat, right off the bat. But first, I want to I say one little thing here. Isn't Paul ambidextrous? He can talk to religious people, and he can talk to totally secular people. He's the Pat Vendetti of evangelism. That was that guy. He's a guy, the only, only person in modern league baseball that could pitch with both arms, and he could switch mid-batter. How freaky would that be if you're batting against this guy? He's now a lefty. Like, he just, he had a glove he could just go back and forth with. Only one person in modern... There was one other guy like 150 years ago that did that. But anyway, this is Paul. He could talk to anybody. You know, he could just talk to like the soccer mom. You just throw him over here. You know, next thing he's with a total like philosophical, you know, he's sharing the gospel there, you know. Now he's with somebody that's, you know, all high and mighty because they're religious and they know the Bible, but they really don't know grace. And that was Paul. Amazing versatility. Amazing evangelical ambidextrity, if that is such a word. So... All right, so what was Paul doing when he was doing this? Well, he reasoned, it says. He was reasoning in the synagogue, in the marketplace. I love that word, dialegomai in Greek, okay? Uh, this is this idea of, it's a really beautiful word. It's this idea of like mingling different eyes, giving consideration. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a good conversation. You know, one where you're not calling people names on social media. You know what I'm saying? Like, where you really get into things. You really kind of talk about stuff and, and you really listen to somebody and they listen to you and then, and then you kind of draw observations. You know, that's what's going on here, okay? Uh, it, it, it's to mingle thought with thought, to ponder, to revolve in the mind, to converse and discourse with another, to deeply engage in conversation. And that's what Paul is doing here. That's what he's doing. He's dialegomying. He's using the Socratic method, within Socrates' city. Now, notice what he's not doing. He's not yelling at the people in the marketplaces they went by, you're going to hell! And they're like, what, what's, what is hell? What's that guy yelling about? We don't know. He's not going into the restrooms at the Agora and planting very carefully, you know, little leaflets and tracks. And he's not doing that. He's not dropping truth bombs on social media. What's he doing? He's doing something that's become very hard. He's having a very humble, genuine conversation about things that matter. And he's doing it in person, which is what I would recommend. Okay, that's what he's doing. He's having these kind of conversations, all right? He's creating a space in which there can be give and take, genuine conversation. There's an art to this, and it's very hard for us today. You know, we need to get off our phones. We need to learn how to have conversations. One of the things I, I'm starting school on Monday myself, and I'm teaching in the honors program at APU. And one of the things we teach is how to have a conversation. Are you in there? Yeah? Sweet. 
Um, it's so important to learn how to have a conversation. It's hard to listen carefully and to formulate good questions and to notice, right? It's hard. And so that's what he's doing. Um, if you need help, there's a book called God Space that uh, Bob Verberg pointed out to me. Um, and you can ask Bob all about this book. I skimmed it. My takeaway from the book was, you know, so many Christians are afraid. Like, how am I going to share Jesus? Like, I need to be able to answer every possible question. That's not it at all. You just need to ask. You just have a couple of good questions. One of my favorite questions you can steal is, what's giving you joy these days? What's giving you joy these days? You know, that's a, that can be answered very innocently. You know, like, yeah, you know, I like getting drunk with my buddies and playing softball or whatever. You know, like, okay. It can also be answered like, you know what? I don't have any joy in my life these days. Now we're on the subject of joy. C.S. Lewis wrote a, his, his testimony. is called Surprised by Joy. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do with that question, but you just need to develop the ability to ask questions and to listen and pay attention to people. And that's what we see Paul doing there. Um, someone said, good evangelism is like putting a rock in someone's shoe. It gives them something to think about the rest of the day. I'm not sure we're called to put rocks in people's shoes, but feeling noticed and feeling like somebody's asking about your life and asking good questions, I think that's where we want to go. Okay. Now, uh, in case you're wondering if everything was easy for Paul, and that's not your experience, uh, Paul had uh, people that were skeptical right off the bat. We read, we read that Paul met some intellectual skeptics. Look what it says in Acts 17, 18 to 20. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him there in the Agora. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Let's look at these two criticisms of Paul. The first is, what does this babbler have to say? This is an awesome word. Okay, it, it, it literally is seed picker. And the, and the images of a bird that goes and picks up lots of different seeds, different kinds of seeds, and puts them all together in their nest. So that you have this hodgepodge collection. And the idea is that Paul is somebody, he doesn't think for himself. He goes and gets talking points from different people, and he puts them all together, and it just doesn't make any sense. Unlike our elegant philosophy, Epicureanism, right? So that's their, that's their criticism. Here's another criticism. Well, wait a second. I think, he, I think he believes what we believe, but he's presenting some new gods we haven't heard of, Jesus and Anastasis, Mrs. Resurrection. Maybe they're a couple. In other words, Paul is introducing an unknown, unknown gods. Paul heard that. Paul's going to come back with that. Notice that, okay? Gods they'd never heard of. And Paul's like, eh, you're on to something there. All right. You know, Luke mentions these two philosophical schools, and with great self-control, because I have a master's in philosophy, with great self-control, I'm just going to give you a few things, because later on, he's going to, I'll use the word, deconstruct their position. I don't know if that's true. It's more like he criticizes their position. Um, he's going to pull apart their views as he gives his speech when we get to what Paul says. But let's talk about these briefly. The first group is the Epicureans. They believe that humans were composed of matter, and when you died you ceased to exist, okay? You were just dissolved, that's it. They were polytheists, nominally. Yeah, the gods, maybe they exist, but they're deists. If you know what a deist is, it's somebody who believes that God created the world and then just took off. He's in his own world. He doesn't care about us, has nothing to do with us. So they're polytheistic deists. If there are gods, they have nothing to do with us. 
We don't need to worry about them. It's irrelevant. So in their world, okay, they deny divine providence. They deny this idea that there's going to be any kind of judgment or future or afterlife. And the wise person doesn't care about things like divine judgment or reward. And the only thing that really matters is we're only here right now. So just live a pleasurable life. Now, the Epicureans get a bad rap. They don't mean go out and party, rage till you die. They mean, like, live a, live a congenial life, okay? Try to minimize pain. Try to maximize happiness. Try to, try to live a life where you have less problems and just enjoy it. YOLO, baby. You only live once. Like, that's them, right? That's the Epicureans, okay? Then there's these Stoics, all right? The Stoics were not materialists. They were pantheists. They believed that God was the world's soul, and therefore all of nature, including us, was connected in the world's soul. There's only one ultimate thing. It's, kind of, it's called monism. Um, and so the, so the bottom line is that, is that the world kind of is what it is, and you are what you are, and things just happen. And strong moral judgments about the world being evil, or like, you know, there just is what it is. I mean, it's very common with pantheist kind of faiths to not have any kind of strong moral categories. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stay on track here. But the point is that the wise person cultivates, <laughs> we need to have a whole thing on basic worldview here, because once you get that stuff down, it's really easy to assess where people are coming from. Anyways, so the basic thing here is, though, is, that, is that the wise person cultivates an attitude of self-sufficient contentment, or as the, as the English like to say, maintain a, a, a stiff upper lip, right? Just just kind of suck it up and go through life. That's life. It, it is what it is. I am what I am. Such is life, right? And so there's no need to waste your emotion on what is or could be or is not. Just maintain that stiff upper lip. And they also had this view, and this is also part of pantheism, that history is not going anywhere. It's cyclical, okay? So there, there's no direction to history. It's not going anywhere. So Paul will, in his speech, we'll see where he goes after these things. Okay, but clearly they don't understand him. So they, they take him to the Areopagus, right? This is this, this hill where the, the, the superior court of Athens is the very brightest and best of their society. And the reason they do that is because at this point, um, the, the Areopagus is not so much trying cases. They might do that. And there is a slight danger that Paul could be found out as, you know, this guy, you know, so what he's saying is wacko. You're no longer able to speak in the Agora. And if they really don't like him, they could whip him. But really, what they want to do is they want to create a framework where it's like they almost have a debate within themselves. Like, what is this guy even talking about? I don't know. Let's throw him up there and see what he says. Give him a couple hours, right? And that's what they do. They bring him to the Areopagus so that they can hear his views because he's bringing some strange things. I have to throw this in. Luke includes this. It wasn't read this morning, but it's, it's genius. 21. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is really cool. You know, ideas in Athens were treated like a fashion. And people were interested in the newest idea. You, kind of want, you want to be seen that you are kind of up on the new lingo and the newest idea. Um, this is very similar to our own kind of late modern, postmodern culture. I don't know if you noticed that, but like, I mean, if you've ever been in academic circles, people love to banter around ideas, but no, ever, no one ever approaches ideas as if they might be true or false. Which is, it, which is what's true about ideas, right? And so people get in the habit of not even believing their beliefs. And if you happen to believe your beliefs, you're seen as suspect. Sound familiar? Like, you actually believe your beliefs? Man, I've had people really upset that I believe my beliefs. I'm like, you know, that's the thing about beliefs. You tend to believe them. But anyways, 
Interesting, there's a, whole, there's a whole doctoral dissertation waiting for that verse, okay? It might be you, that's the Holy Spirit, let's talk. All right, let's move on to what Paul actually said, okay? Let's, let's talk about what did Paul say. And this is my last, my last point, okay? Uh, first, uh, just a few things just to kind of frame this. Number one, we need to understand that Paul is not, we don't have Paul's entire speech here, okay? When, when Luke got back together with Paul, uh, he said, hey, Luke, how did, it, Luke's like, hey, Paul, how did it go in Athens? And Paul's like, wow, I, I went up to the Areopagus. I mean, holy cow. And they're like, tell us all about Christianity. Defend this stuff you're saying. And is it coherent? Is it just crazy? And Paul's like, so this was my basic outline. So what we have here is the outline of Paul's speech. We know that people used to give two to three hours in front of the Areopagus, and that was standard protocol. So this is what Luke wrote down. This was the outline of his speech, Okay. Now, look how he starts. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul starts right out of the gate connecting with their world. You know, Paul starts right off the bat. He's making it personal. I'm addressing you. He's making, I've been observing you, okay? I've been watching you. I've been in your city. I've seen some things. I actually see how, how you kind of think about things. I sense the things that matter to you. And I've noticed that you, you have this altar to an unknown God, which you, you, you seem to acknowledge that there might be a God that you don't know, okay? So he's right away kind of entering into, this is called an internal critique in rhetoric, but he's right away entering into their own world, and their set of assumptions. He's framing it in a very personal way. Now, if you're hung up on the unknown, altar to the unknown God, that was just a common thing. When they were gonna, what they would do is they would let uh, sheep go throughout the city, and whatever uh, temple your sheep stopped in front of, they'd grab that sheep, okay, you're gonna be sacrificed to the God of Apollo because you stopped in front of Apollo's temple. But if a sheep kind of hung out somewhere and wouldn't go anywhere, they're like, well, maybe there's an unknown God. Let's build a temple to that God. So that's kind of, that's where that came from. But the point is that Paul sees this and he realizes that there is this kind of what Calvin called the census divinitatis. The people still, even people that don't know God, they have some, they cannot get so far away where they may not have a haunting sense that there could be what Anselm called a maximally perfect being, that there could be a being beyond which a greater being we could not imagine. And so Paul here starts with where they're at. And, and then, he, and then he, he goes on. And so there's going to be six points to his sermon. If you think I'm moving fast, I'm sorry, but we got a six-point sermon coming on. He doesn't have seven points because he gets cut off. I think he had a seventh point, and that was going to bring it home. But six-point sermon, okay, here's the thing with this sermon. Every point is about God. So he has six points about God. Every single one, I could have got a chart up here that shows how every point has a massive number of Old Testament verses behind it. But Paul is digesting Scripture because they don't believe in Scripture. And he's putting it forward in a way that they can understand. Okay? So Paul connects with his audience. He puts, it, the, he puts his message immediately into their context. He, he frames it in light of their own concerns, their own, his own observations about them. Okay? And then he makes a series of statements about God. And one more thing, he begins with God 
as creator, and he ends with God as judge. He's, he's going to actually critique, he's going to go against the Epicureans who say that there, there is, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, um, yes, the, the Stoics who say there is no history. And you say, actually, there is a history. There's a whole meta-narrative. Meta there's an arc to history where it begins and where it ends. So he's going to give the entire biblical narrative. It begins to unfold as he's preaching. You can see it's, it's, really, it's really quite amazing, okay? So here we go. Let's do this with no further ado. Um, uh, let's, let's see what he does. So he, here's his first point. God is the ubiquitous creator of everything. Verse 24. God is the ubiquitous. That means everywhere. God is everywhere. Creator of everything. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So right off the bat, he's already creating the basis of theism. There's a creator and there's a creation. Okay? These are the two fundamental realities. Okay? There is a gap between them. Don't confuse them, all right? Because God, God is outside of the world. He made the world. He exists without the world. He made the world. So everything that exists comes from God. You might see made in China underneath a lot of little things. The reality is, is that underneath everything is made by God. Everything is made by God. That's what Paul is saying, okay? Everything is made by God. You know, the Chinese, I'll throw this in there. You know, the Chinese, uh, a Chinese Christian said, you know, you can pull our steeples down, but you cannot pull the stars down. You know, everything is giving testimony to its creator. You know, as Calvin said, that the world is a theater of God's glory. And then this fits with the second point. Look, God, God isn't part of the creation. He can't be caged. He can't, you can't, you can't contain God. God is ubiquitous. Um, you know, he's saying this literally right in front of the Parthenon, okay? Just put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second. Like he's saying, all of this, no, that's, that's not it. That's not it. It's very courageous, right? Okay? But he, I mean, Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you're going to build me that I need rest? Like God's like, I don't exist. I don't, I don't, I don't exist in creation. You can't cage the creator. Point number two, God is the sustainer of everything. Verse 25, God is the sustainer of everything. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. You know, I mean, he's talking to polytheists, okay? So they, in the Greek world, all these gods, I mean, these gods could, you know, some could be really lonely, so they go and they grab a woman up. I mean, have you ever read Obed? Some of them are like, you know, some of these gods can, you know, they need a vacation, so they go, sometimes they get tired, you know, sometimes they need rest, you know. I mean, there's this great passage where Elijah does, some, he engages in some holy mockery. And he goes against the prophets of Baal and says, well, okay, so you, you're worshiping these gods that have all these limitations. Why isn't one of your gods showing up? Why isn't Baal showing up? Hmm, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he needed some rest. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he needed to relieve himself. Your God's a joke. I mean, that's really, you know. So um, God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need to go on vacation. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need anything. He is completely self-sufficient. The theological word for that is the doctrine of a sadie. God is sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside himself. Just sit with that for a second, because that's absolutely humbling. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us, but here's the good news. God loves us. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. But we need him. He, give, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need us, 
We desperately need him. He's the one who gives life and breath. Every time you breathe, the Bible says that God is the one who gives the breath of life. And every breath you take is a reminder of your dependence upon God because every breath is a gift from God. Every breath. We radically depend upon God. God is the source and ruler of nations. Look what he says in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. All the different kinds of people. God's design. God loves diversity. God created, you know, if you don't like diversity, tough luck. Talk to God about it. God made all kinds of people. God made people with weird Roman noses like me. Some of you have small noses, big noses. Some of you are stout. Some of you are skinny. Some of you have hair. Some of you are blessed. I mean, God made lots of people, okay? All different kinds of skin colors and body types. God loves it all. That was God's design, okay? He made all these different kinds, different nations, different ethnicities. God loves Mexican food. Maybe more than me. That's hard to imagine. But then what does he say? God is sovereign over history and geography, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I love that. Having determined their allotted Meaning, it has a direction. God is the author of history. God is moving history in a direction. Look what, he else, what else he says. God is knowable. Up until this point, God has been very transcendent. He's your creator. He gives you breath. He's, you know, he's driving history. God is knowable. Look at verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's actually not far from us. What is he saying right here? He's saying something amazing. This God that created you and made you, he wants a relationship with you. The creator of the universe wants a, he, he desires for you to seek him and to find him. Paul is saying, this, the one who made you, he desires for you to seek him and to find you. In fact, he's not far from any of you. He's right there. He wants you to know him. That's what Paul's saying. God made us and he made us for a relationship with him. And now Paul is going after the Epicureans who are deists. The gods have nothing to do with us. Oh, no. God is closer to you than the person sitting beside you. God is as close as he possibly can be. God wants to know you. God wants a relationship with you. God is invested, and he wants a relationship with you. But then we see that something is not quite right. If God is right there in front of us, why is it that we don't see him? And now Paul begins, you know, we had creation He's established God is the creator. Now we're going to have sin. Paul starts moving towards sin. That's the second part of the arc of the biblical narrative. There's a problem here. Uh, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is a really interesting picture. I can't help but think that Paul is thinking of the Odyssey where the Cyclops gets blinded and then the Cyclops is like reaching around and trying to find the men, you know? That's the image. God's right in front of us, but we can't see him. He made us. He gave us everything we have. He put us on earth at this time, at this place. He wants a relationship with you, and here we are. What's wrong? Sin. Sin has blinded us. We need to have the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the preaching of the gospel because we've been blinded by sin, so we can't see God. And then he says this, God is the father of humanity. He brings that father language in. 
right? Isn't that beautiful? He brings that father language in. And look how he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. You can't get away from God. The psalm says, where am I gonna go away from you? God is ubiquitous. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul never quotes a verse from the Old Testament. The only quotes he gives is their own poets. When he appeals to authority, it's their authorities. Brilliant. Being then God's, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Look, you guys are, are creating all these gods, all these statues to reflect your gods. But don't you know that you are the image of God? You are his offspring. You were made to reflect your creator. All this stuff is just a waste of your time. You're missing your role, your purpose in life. You're missing what you were made for. You were made to know your creator. You're made to reflect your creator. You're made to be known by your creator. You are in the image of God. And so it's utterly foolish to worship anything else but God. Don't, don't worship created things. Because you are his offspring and he wants you to come back. And then, sixth point, God is calling you to repent. God calls you to repent and find him before it's too late. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Now, what, is this, what does this mean? This doesn't mean like God's like, okay, you get a reset. Now, what this means is that this time in which you have been ignoring God, okay, in which you have been ignoring your creator, God hasn't brought the judgment that you deserved. God has been merciful. He's been patient with you. This God is worthy of honor and praise. You're worshiping all these things and you haven't given an ounce to praise to your true, the true and living God. And he's the one that's deserving of it. And he's jealous for that praise because it's rightfully his. Because he's the one that actually made you. And every breath you have is a gift from him. And so God has been very patient. He's been very merciful. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Something has happened. Something has happened in history. We know what it is. Christ has come. God has moved towards us. He was already so close, and now he's come as close as he possibly could come. He's come in flesh and blood so he can look us in the face and says, I'm here. I want this. I'm going to do everything I can so that you and I can be good, so that you can have a relationship with me. I am your creator. Something has happened. Something has happened that's made it all the more important to get this thing fixed. It's made the issue all the more important. Our ongoing rejection needs to be dealt with because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Paul's saying, you won't have forever on this one. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's saying, this man who God has appointed is going to judge everybody. And we know that he'll be the judge of the world because God has vindicated him in his resurrection. Jesus is the world's true king. And if there is a seventh point, I think this is where Paul would go immediately into his resurrection testimony. Paul did that over and over again. He'd bring it back to, and I met this man who is going to judge the world. He is the God-man. And he appeared to me on Damascus. And he's real. Jesus is real. He's alive. And you're going to meet him. 
And he came and he died and he was raised so that you can be made right with the God who created you, who knows you, who gives you every breath. He's not far from you. He wants you to turn to him. And he's made it possible. But you don't have all day. You need to come to know God and be made right with God. And it says right there that Paul is cut short. That's the end of his sermon. This is six, six points. That's his outline. Again, maybe we'll hear it in person someday if Paul can recollect. But there it is. I think he's coming to the climax. As I read it, I'm like, I think if I was in that room, I'd be like, everyone's kind of leaning in and people are starting to feel uncomfortable, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And some people are like, what? what? This is... And then there's people like, wow, this sounds plausible. So you have different responses going on and it's getting intense. You've maybe been in a room like that. And then something interesting happens. Look at this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some started mocking, whoa, 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 raised from the dead? Interesting. Others said, well, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, not bad, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So there was something about the resurrection. You know, they had a view of human beings that made Christianity not plausible. And I find this very interesting. In fact, I think it's another parallel between our own culture in Athens. Neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believed that the body was theologically latent, that it was something that God had given them and that was something that God was going to raise. That's very fascinating to me. You know, we live in our own culture at a time where the body is seen as a blob, that you can do with whatever you would like to do. Well, people in Paul's day struggled with an, a, a, the same problem, which is they don't see the body as theologically latent, that God has given us our bodies as gifts, and God is going to raise this body that he's given us. And so there's a whole other conversation here that we could have. But it's, it's interesting, that parallel. Anyways, notice the response, though. Some mocked, that's going to happen. When you share the message of Christianity, you have mockers. Expect it. That's going to happen. Some mocked. Some said, we'll hear you again on this. You know what? Let's get together for a coffee again. I'm still, okay. This is interesting. Let's talk about it again. I'm not sure, but let's talk again. Let's get a coffee. And then what happens? Uh, but some joined him and believed. Among them was Dionysius the who? Supreme Court Justice. I mean, Jerry Opagite. Like, this is like... Pretty incredible to have this guy's like, I'm convinced. The Areopagite. And then there's a woman who's so important that we have her name here, a woman named Damaris. We don't know, but she was significant in their society. And then others that believe them. So, you know, that's what's going to happen. You're going to have some people that, that are going to mock you. Some people, you're going to be like, I don't buy it. There's going to be some people that's like, okay, let me process that. That's new for me. Let's get together again. And then you have some people that are going to believe. That's not a bad response. Uh, you know, church history says that uh, Dionysus the Areopagite became the first pastor of, of that. I don't know if that's true. Okay, we don't know anything about, uh, the, it doesn't say one way or the other about if there's a church established, but clearly there's believers, right? And, and I think this is actually pretty encouraging. I would take it. If every time I shared the gospel, I had some people that are just, that's great. So, all right. Well, that's what I got this morning. Uh, this Paul, I think, he, I think he's pointing the way for us. He's giving us a model, you know. Uh, 
It's a model, not only for ancient Athens, it's a model for late modern Los Angeles. And so, you know, my, my prayer, my prayer for all of us is that we would see as Paul sees. You know, that we wouldn't slip into just being tourists in our own city, you know, and just become spiritual tourists that don't really see what's going on. What are the needs? What are the, what's the heartache? That we don't, you know, that God would enable us to see all the God substitutes of everyone around us who doesn't know God. And that we would become brokenhearted, that we would feel what Paul feels. That we would want so badly for Jesus to be worshipped and honored in our neighborhoods. And we want so badly for people to know the God who made them and created them. The God who's not far from them. The God who came so close in Jesus. And that we would do what Paul does. That we would, we would put together some good questions. We'd learn to be good at conversation. we put our phones down. we learn to dialogue. we learn to be respectful, but courageous and joyful. And that we learn to speak to all kinds of people. Paul had that ambidextrousness that we speak to people that are religious, people that are not religious, people that are coming from all over. And then finally, my prayer for all of us is that we will have the courage to say what Paul said. That we'd be able to talk to people, spend time, get to know them, and then we'd have the courage to say, you know, the God who made you and the God who sustained you and the God who gives you every breath, that God's not far from you. In fact, he came on earth in order that you could be made right with him because, you know, he's the God that made you. He's the God that deserves your attention, your love, your praise. And he's, he wants to draw you back. He's waiting patiently, mercifully, because you were made to know this God. That's what your life is about. Turn to him so you can know him. He's not very far from you. May we have the courage to be like Paul here in L.A. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this model that you've given us in Scripture, and we pray that we will have eyes to see that the field is white and ripe for harvest, not only out there, but sometimes in here too, Lord, at church. Lord, help us to see the people around us that don't know you. Help us to see their God substitutes, the things they're turning to because they don't know you, and help us to show them that that's never going to meet their true heart desire. And Lord, may we also grow in our ability to talk with people in a way that's respectful and kind. May we, may we be able to ask good questions that draw uh, people out in kindness and humility and honesty. And then, Lord, give us the courage to put it out there like Paul did. Even though we know we might be mocked, even though we know people might look at us with a confused look, Lord, help us to trust what you've said, which is your word will not return void. Give us that kind of courage. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.